Joy is true contentment that comes from what? That comes from faith in Christ. Emotions, happiness, sadness, those things are temporary, dependent upon circumstances, dependent upon things, but joy is eternal. It is dependent upon Christ. And we as God's people should be a people of joy. If nothing else, we should be described by love, we should be described love for each other, love for Christ, but we should also be described by joy. And so... We need to be a people of joy. We've been reminded Paul uses the word 16 different times in the book of Philippians. It is a book of joy. That's why we've been in this series, Joyride. We want to experience joy. We want to share joy with others. We know that we are commanded to be joyful. We know that joy is a choice. It's not something that is just naturally going to happen. But we should be a people of joy because we have grace from above and peace from within. The grace of God, the peace of God. Grace is something that happens to me that I cannot not uh, earn that God gives me. Peace is something that happens within me that's not dependent upon my circumstances. We talked about the peace of God that passes all human comprehension. And because of those things, we've received grace and we have peace available. We should be a people of joy. Years ago, when I moved out of my parents' house, right before Mandy and I got married, I moved into a new position at a new church and a new house. My parents helped me move in. They left. After they left, I realized my dad had left me a letter um, on the bed where, in, in the room in the new house where I was staying in. I opened that letter and I read it. It was some instructions that my dad gave me, some life lessons that he wrote down for me that he had never shared with me in person, some things he had learned as a husband, as a father, and, and the, the, the weight, uh, the reality, the importance that he felt in, when he realized his role as the spiritual leader of his home. And I took that advice, and I've carried it with me, and I've tried to follow that advice. I've tried to be that person, but in that letter were my dad's instructions to me. Some things he had learned. And what we've seen over the past seven weeks, again, this is week eight, is Paul's instructions, his advice to the Philippian church on how to live with joy. And you and I have learned from, hopefully learned from this letter, how we can receive and maintain joy in life. And today we look in chapter 4, verse 14, beginning in verse 14, we look at Paul's final instructions to the Philippians. The closing of this letter, Paul gives some instructions, some more instructions on how to maintain joy in life in this letter. We should do our best to follow these instructions to the T. And what he tells us is a few things. First, he shows us the importance of displaying compassion. If we're going to have joy in life, then we need to have compassion and show compassion towards others. Look at verse 14. Still you did well by sharing with me in my hardships, and you Philippians know that in the early days of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you alone. Now, Paul had a lot of needs as he traveled. This is his second missionary journey when he meets the Philippians. Now it's later on. He's in Rome at the time of the writing of this letter. Um, And all of the journeys that he went on, he had different needs. He had hardships. He had heartache. He had pain. He had suffering. He had needs. And we see that through it all, 
The Philippians supported him, not always financially, as we talked about last week. It had been a while, but they always cared for him. They always prayed for him. They were partners with him in ministry. And that word partner is important. The way he describes the Philippians, it means fellowship, partnership. It really, the, the, the real meaning is active participation. What he's saying here, the Philippians had supported him when no other church had. That they had been with him through thick and thin. That's what he's saying. They had always loved and supported him. Now, what I want to do is, I want to just kind of walk through the, the, the timeline from when Paul leaves the Philippians, just a little bit here, okay? We've got a map here, and I'm going uh, to show you a few things, okay? So if you look way up here, that's, that's Philippi, okay? So if, Paul meets the Philippians, the church begins, we talked about that at the beginning, how that started. He runs into two ladies in a prayer meeting, they come to Christ, and, and, and then of course there's the, the, the jailhouse rocked, uh, he and Silas in the jail, the jailer comes to Christ, and then the, the, the Philippian church starts and, and revival breaks out, okay? Well, 10 years prior to the writing of this letter, the Philippian letter, Paul's letter to the Philippians, Paul leaves Philippi and he travels to Thessalonica right here, okay? And when he goes to Thessalonica, the Philippian church continually, frequently sends people to him with gifts to support his ministry. Now, Thessalonica, while, you know, they, they were more wealthy than the Philippians. The Philippians were poor. The Philippians sacrificed and provided for Paul's needs. Well, time goes on and Paul leaves this whole area of Macedonia and he travels down to Corinth. He ends up in Corinth and we read in, in, in Corinthians that Paul received, he wouldn't, Corinth was very wealthy, but they were also very proud. And Paul didn't want them to misinterpret his purpose for being there, so he would not receive money from them. What he did do is he received money. The Philippian church continued to provide for his needs. On and on and on, continually, they had done that. Well, we get to the book of Philippians. And as we talked about last week, Paul mentions, hey, in verse 10, chapter 4, verse 10, you haven't, essentially he says, you haven't, supported me financially, materially in a while. It's been a while, but now you're renewing your love for me. So some time had passed. They hadn't seen each other face-to-face -face in 10 years. They had sent representatives to him. Even when he left Philippi, they didn't get mad at him. They didn't get upset with him. They understood he had a, a mission to accomplish. And then when he goes to Thessalonica, they continue to support him. Uh, they, you know, there were times in Paul's ministry where things were going well and others criticized him for doing it for false motives. They didn't do that. They continued to support him. There were time in his, times in his ministry where things weren't going so well. There was, were no fruits to show. There was no fruit to show for his labor. They didn't doubt him. They didn't criticize him. They continued to support him. Not always financially, but yes, sometimes and always through love, support, and prayer. They continually supported him. Time and time again, they were with him. And again, it's been a while since they've had the opportunity 
to support him materially, but now he's in prison. And while they had sent people to be with him in prison before, now he's in prison in Rome, and they send Epaphroditus not only to be with him, but also to bring him some things he needs, financial, material support. And he's thanking them for this. And he's writing them this letter to show them how much joy he's received and to encourage them not to lose their joy. They showed compassion on Paul. Time and time again, they continued to support him. And the reality is, there is no other church that supported Paul the same way or as much as the Philippian church did for him. They loved Paul and they showed it, which goes to show the old saying, actions speak louder than words, right? I say I love you. Well, if I really love you, I'm going to show you that I love you, which reminds us of a truth. Intentions are not the same as actions. And my responsibility to act will not be negated by my refusal to respond to someone's need. I'm responsible because I'm a child of God who has been blessed much, received grace and peace, mercy, all of those things. God provides for my needs. I'm responsible to provide for the needs of others when God gives me the opportunity. Simply because I choose not to, that doesn't change the fact that I'm still responsible to do that. I'm still supposed to meet others' needs. And so what Paul is saying is, hey, you have met my needs. You have brought me great joy. And you have done exactly what God's called you to do. Your actions show that you truly do love me. And so what, how concerned, question for myself, for all of us, how concerned am I about the needs of others? What do my actions show, my daily actions, how, whether or not I meet people's needs, what do my actions show about my heart's concern for the needs of others? Do they show that I'm concerned at all? Again, actions speak louder than words. And the Philippians had shown Paul that they loved him. They showed compassion. Next, Paul tells us to give generously. He tells us to give generously. And they did. Man, they didn't have anything. They were, they were broke. They were poor. Yet they continued to support him when they had the opportunity, time and time again. Look at verse 16. For even in Thessalonica, you sent gifts for my needs several times. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek profit that is increasing, the profit that is increasing to your account. Now listen, money's not everything, but it is something. We need money to live, don't we? You know, we, we, you know, I, I don't, I very seldom preach through series on stewardship. Every now and then I'll do that. But what I've found is that in preaching through God's word, it comes up time and time again. And this is one of those times. Paul is talking about their being willing to sacrifice to give for his needs. And, and listen, he's saying, I don't necessarily need this. I can, I've learned to have, how to be content with a lot or a little. We talked about that two weeks ago. But he knows the importance of our giving to support the ministries of the church and of sharing the gospel, the Great Commission. What they were doing by supporting Paul is that they were partnering with him through their giving. And that's how, why, remember, that's how he describes them. They are, they are sharing with him, not only in his sufferings, but they are partnering with him. They couldn't be there with him. They were ministering to their community But what they could do was give to support what he was doing when they had the opportunity. It had been a while, but they had a pattern of doing that. They had given to support his ministry. And Paul's saying, by your giving, it's like you're here with me. You're partnering with me in ministry. 
See, here's the problem, though. Listen, I'm not preaching on this because we're not a giving church. You are a giving church. You're a generous church. I mean, I'm not trying to make you feel guilty if you don't give. That's not my job, okay? What I am saying and what Paul is saying is that this is a vital, this giving is a biblical indicator of your spiritual health and maturity. The problem is many churches have a lot of ninjas in them. What do I mean by that? Well, ninjas in, t- in, in church speak, okay, ninjas show up on Sunday morning and then they vanish. They don't serve in the church in any capacity and they don't give to support the ministry of the church. So here's my advice. Here's Paul's advice. My paraphrase. Don't be a ninja. All right? Because you're missing out on, on growth that's vital, okay? We need people, not ninjas, we need people that will support by using their time, their talents, and their, their tithe, their gifts, to support the ministry of the church. Because what is happening here, Paul, he's, he's showing them that this is a sign, and, and one of the reasons he's praising them is because, hey, he's saying this is a sign that you have grown spiritually. He was there when the church began, and their generosity was a sign of their spiritual maturity. And the reason this is the case, two reasons. First... Like in the case of Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19, we see Zacchaeus is saved by Jesus. He had cheated people. He was a tax collector. He cheated people. And so once he was saved, he realized his sin. And he said, I'm going to give half of my wealth to the poor. And those that I've cheated, I'm going to give, them, give back four times what I took from them. Giving is first a sign of a regenerate heart. Generosity shows that my life has been changed, that I've received much and I want to give much. It's also a sign, second reason, it is, it's a sign that giving to the ministry that I'm a partner in that ministry. It's evidence of my participation in the spreading of the gospel. You know, we can't go, not, not all of us can go overseas. I mean, hopefully you will at some point in your life. I think every believer should. But there will come a point in your life where you're not physically able to do that. Or that because of your family, because of your responsibilities, or you're just not called to go on the mission field full time or whatever. But we can all partner with those who are doing that by giving. So it's a sign that I'm participating. And the people in in Philippi were models of this, even in Thessalonica, Paul says. Thessalonica was wealthier than Philippi, the Philippians. But they gave. They gave sacrificially. And they continued to do that. You know, in our day and time, we've come to believe that money's evil. And that's not true. Okay? I mean, we need money to live. Now, allowing yourself to become consumed with greed, the love of money... The Bible says is the root of all kinds of evil. Corruption with money can lead to evil. There, it certainly can breed corruption, love of money. But needing money, there's nothing unspiritual about admitting that. And, and we kind of get the idea that it is. I mean, many times, many, almost always, ministry and money go hand in hand. It costs money to do ministry. It costs money to keep the lights on and things of that nature. But here's the thing, don't skip over what Paul says in verse 17. He says, not that I need the gift. Okay? He wants to be clear here. He's learned to live with or without. And again, that's not why he's writing the letter, not while I'm preaching this this morning. I'm preaching it because it's in the scripture, but I'm preaching it because of something Paul's communicating to the Philippians that we all need to know. Paul was more concerned about their spiritual health and well-being than he was about whatever they were giving him. He, he, he could live with or without it. That wasn't the point. His 
interest. He was looking out for their best interests. He wanted them to understand that they desperately needed to depend on God, that they needed to depend on Christ. And that's the issue for us. Is It's not about, hey, we need money. It's about my giving to the Lord shows my dependence upon Him. It shows that I recognize it all belongs to Him, and so I'm going to trust Him. And what He realized, what we need to realize, is the truth that giving will increase your dependence on and faith in God. The, the more I give, the more I know I depend on the Lord. Now, uh, you know, we talked about the difference between tithes and offering. Tithes is 10% of my income. I give that off the top. That is God's. I don't decide what I do with that. But then whatever God blesses with me beyond that, I give to support whatever ministry he leads me to give. The Philippians had done that. A generous heart shows my dependence on God. And the question is, it's really an issue of lordship. Do I trust God to provide for our needs? Now, going back to our table of toys here, all right? You know, there are different things that people put their faith in, that they try to draw security from, right? I mean, there are a lot of different things that we try to draw our security from. I mean, you know, we've talked about money, and, and some people depend on money, and I don't usually carry cash with me, but I actually have some today, um, partially for this reason. But, you know, some people depend on money. The reason giving is hard for some folks is that some folks, they put their trust in their faith. The more dollars they have in their bank account, the more secure they feel. But the problem with that is, is that's temporary, right? I mean, you know, Paul said, I don't, you know, I've learned to live with a lot. I've learned to live with a little, whether well or suffering, whatever the case may be. And, and, and joyful people are people that learn to live with a little. But a lot of people put their faith in the almighty dollar. And they do everything they can to earn it. You know, some people, they put their faith in their work. I brought a tool, just a random tool, but it reminds us of work. You know, how many people do you know are workaholics? That their value, their self-worth comes from what they do. Men, we really struggle with this, don't we? That, that whatever we do, it's, it's not who you are, it's what do you do for a living. And, and our value comes from that. But again, jobs come and go. And you can't take your self-worth from that, but a lot of people do that. I brought a picture, a couple of pictures of my, my kids here. And the in-laws are in there, but I love them too, so I'm going to include them. <laughs> They're good. Uh, family, right? Some of us, our value is based on our, our family. And, and listen, there's nothing wrong with loving your family. And, and family does provide encouragement, and, and it provides a sense of self-worth. But you can't base all your value on this. But some people do. But the problem is, is that family will let you down. I mean, family's there no matter what, good, bad, and indifferent, but we're human beings. And, and ultimately, you're going to disappoint somebody in your family. You can't draw all of your self-worth from this. So here's my advice, okay? Y'all, most of y'all know, I won't go into detail, but Gracie had surgery this week. And one of the things I got her was this little stuffed animal, all right? Partially because I needed it for this illustration, but partially <laughs> because, you know, my, Mandy's answer to any sickness in our family is she nurtures. My answer is I buy them stuff. So, you know, that's, you know, their love's for sale and I'm buying. So, but I bought her this frog and, and we have this tradition in our family, Okay that uh, stuffed animals, we try to think of the goofiest name we can for the stuffed animals. And so Gracie named, Gracie and I named the frog, and she named it, it Smitty, all right? She gave it the first name, I gave it the last name, Smitty Rebot, all right? Bear with me. 
Then we decided, the kids and I decided he needed a middle name, so his middle name is Sace. Smitty Sace Rebot. Smitty says Ribbit. <laughs> there you go. All right. So that's Smitty's name. But here's why I'm showing you Smitty, okay? Instead of depending on this stuff, which, you know, you will from time to time, but instead of putting all of your trust in that, what I want you to do is frog. Fully rely on God. All right? Write that down. Frog. Fully rely on God. Don't trust in things that are temporary. Don't depend on circumstances. Don't depend on emotions. You know, Smitty probably made Gracie feel a little bit better. I hope so. But Smitty will only go so far. All right? God will provide for your needs, and he will be there for you always. You can depend on God. So that's what Paul wanted. That's why he's saying, listen, your gift has blessed me. But here, it is for your benefit. He talks about it being for their benefit. It was more about what it did for them, not what it did for him. It helped him. And listen, I'm not saying he didn't need it. Yes, he may not have survived without their gift while he was in prison. He needed that. But more importantly, he says, I seek the profit that is increasing to your account. It was for their benefit. The point is... Paul knew they needed to settle this issue of lordship in their lives. Do they trust God just like you and I do? So giving, generosity is a direct reflection of your level of spiritual maturity, and that's connected to joy. Next, Paul instructs us to stay committed. We need to stay committed to Christ, regardless of our circumstances. Joy is not dependent upon circumstances, and part of that's because we've determined that we're going to trust God in every circumstance. Remember, God's in control of all the details, ultimately everything's going to be okay from an eternal perspective, even if it's not in this life, in heaven it will be. So I'm going to trust God in all circumstances. I'm going to stay committed. Look at verse 18. He says, I've received everything in full and have an abundance. I'm fully supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you provided, a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. Their service, their gift was like an offering to the Lord. There was a lady in the first church that I pastored. She was in her 80s when we moved there. Her name was Miss Parsons. Miss Parsons was an incredible woman. Her husband died uh, when she was in her 30s, I believe, uh, very young, uh, 40s maybe. I don't know. She may have been a little older than that, but she had been a widow for years, never remarried, one of the most independent people I've ever met in my life. Strong, strong woman. And we moved into our house uh, when we got there. We purchased a house. We were moving in. It was a foreclosure. There was some work that needed to be done. One of the things was painting. Miss Parsons was one of the first people to show up that day to paint. And she painted all day long. Well, at the end, close of the day, I, we were all doing some things. We had gotten the painting done that we needed to, to get done. And I heard a leaf blower upstairs in one of the bedrooms. Well, I walked upstairs and Miss Parsons was hanging out a second floor window trying to blow leaves out of my gutter. And I was like, Miss Parsons, please. You know, I, didn't wanna, I didn't want to be responsible for the death of Miss Parsons. I mean, and so I finally got her to come inside the window, but that was just who she was. I mean, she worked tirelessly. She was constantly helping people. If you moved in her neighborhood, anywhere within like a five-mile radius, you could better believe she was going to show up at your door that next day, the day or the day after. And her first question was going to be whether or not you knew the Lord. And if you didn't, she was going to share the gospel with you. And the other was she just wanted to get to know you. 
because she wanted to build a relationship with you. To the day she had to go into an assisted living where she could not live on her own. To the day that that happened, she was bringing people into the church that she had met that had moved into her neighborhood. That's just who she was. She was a sacrificial servant of the Lord. She gave her time. She gave, yes, she gave material things, but, but she gave everything that she had to serve the Lord. And that's commitment. That is true commitment. And that's what Paul wanted for the Philippians. That's what we need to have. I mean, this sacrificial commitment of the Philippians, because of that, Paul's needs were met. And he talks about that their gift was like a, an offering. It was a fragrant aroma that brought joy to the Lord. It was an offering, yes, given to Paul, but, but ultimately given to the Lord Jesus Christ and was pleasing to God. You know, I'm not talking about just money. I'm talking about time. I'm talking about giving myself as a sacrifice to the Lord, committing that much to the Lord. And, and I want to share with you a truth. We, you and I, are investing in our future, whether we know it or not. You are today, whatever you do today, you're investing in tomorrow. However you spend your time, you're investing in the future. So it's best we be intentional about it. And Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 6, verse 21... Your heart will always be where your treasure is. Your attention will always be drawn to where your treasure is. So what is your treasure? Or where are you investing your time, your money, your talents? Your, wherever your treasure is, whatever you're drawing your worth from, if it's one of these temporary things, that's where your heart is. You should love your family. You should take care of your family. You should be a good employee. You should give your work your best. All those things are okay. But... Where, do you, where is your heart truly? Where do you gain worth from? Where are you the most committed? What are you the most committed to? Because God knows what we've invested. Look at Galatians 6. Don't be misled. You cannot mock the justice of God. You will always harvest what you plant. Whatever you invest, that's what you'll get back. Those who live only to satisfy their own sinful nature will harvest decay and death from that sinful nature. But those who live to please the Spirit will harvest everlasting life from the Spirit. When God's in our hearts of compassion, sacrificing for the needs of others, then He receives glory in that. There's joy for us in that. When we give to support the spreading of the gospel, there's joy in that. There's value in that. When we sacrifice our time, ourselves, for the needs of others, there's joy in that. There's value in that. And it all goes to speak to our level of commitment to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, commitment is kind of like buttons. I've got some buttons here. Commitment is kind of like these buttons. You know, I've got a button-up shirt on today. What would happen if my buttons were not there? My shirt would just be open, right? I mean, buttons hold things together, don't they? And that's the purpose of a button is that it holds things together, shirt, pants, whatever the case may be. And our commitment is kind of like these buttons. The commitments we make to the Lord and for the Lord draw us closer to Christ. Our commitments draw us closer to Him. So what is your level of commitment? What's my level of commitment? What do my actions say about my commitment? What do they say about where my treasure is? Where is my heart? You know, the things that I spend, invest in, that's where my heart is. And so our commitments need to be strong. It's no mistake that the most 
joyous people in life are also the most generous. They've got their commitment straight. They're committed to the Lord Jesus Christ. They've learned to live with little. They're like Paul. I can have a lot or have a little. My joy is the same. I'm committed to Christ. I'm walking in fellowship with him. I have all I need in him, in Jesus. Your commitment, stay committed. And when we get to that point, it's a whole lot easier to give God glory in every situation, which is the next step, the next piece of advice that Paul gives us. To give God glory in every situation. Verse 19. My God will supply all your needs according to his riches. Now to our God and the Father be glory. He glorifies God. He's setting the example forever and ever. You know, start with that phrase, according to God's riches. It's like this. If I had a million dollars, which I don't, but if I did, let's play the game. If I had a million dollars and I said, hey, I'm going to write you a check for a hundred dollars out of that million. That would be somewhat generous, right? I mean, that would be something. Well, that would be out of my riches, right? It would be a portion out of my riches, but that's not what Paul says. God will supply all of your needs according to. So with our analogy, that would be the equivalent of me having a million dollars and just giving you a blank check, okay? Now here's the deal. You know, a bank account's limited. You know, we're we're talking about an imaginary bank account here, an imaginary check with an imaginary endless number of zeros, Because I know you all would not choose to use the whole million dollars, right? But, you know, it's there. But here's the thing. The controlling element is what? In Christ. He will meet your needs, and the controlling element is Him, which means it's in Him and from Him. So it's according to His character, according to His plan for your life, for my life, and according to what's best for you from His perspective. It's not a blank check in the sense that, hey, I can just ask God for anything and he's going to give it to me. It is the promise that it may not be the way you think it should be, but God will take care of you and he will take care of me. He will supply, but, but hey, the verse is still there. It's according in proportion to his riches, the infinite riches of God. That's what he uses to draw from to provide for your needs and my needs. What an amazing promise. What an amazing source of joy to know that God is going to supply my needs and your needs. And that he gets the glory. Whether it's a promotion at work, you glorify God. Yeah, you worked hard for it, but he gets the glory. You've been dealing with an illness. You've been to doctors. You've talked to different people. It hasn't gone away. And then suddenly God provides healing. The doctors can't explain it, but you Even though you can't explain it in medical terms, you give God glory. He deserves the glory. You've got a child that's been been a challenge since day one, has grown up and been a challenge their whole life. They've grown into adulthood. They're still a challenge. And just about the time you're ready to throw up your hands and give up, suddenly they turn their life over to the Lord. You praise God. Yeah, there were a lot of blood, sweat, and tears in raising that child, but you give God glory. And here's what happens when you do that. Giving God glory in any and every situation releases me from responsibility that's not mine to begin with. It's God's responsibility to provide for your needs, not yours. It's God's responsibility to solve the problems in your life, not yours. As long as I am faithful, as long as I walk with the Lord, as long as I'm committed to the Lord, as long as I have found contentment and satisfaction in the Lord, I'm glorifying Him in every situation. I've made that determined decision to praise Him. As long as I am faithful, God will provide. It's His responsibility, not mine. And boy, does that produce joy. To not try to deal with all that on my own, because I can't. There's no way any of us can. 
It's his responsibility, not mine. God will provide. He promises to provide. The Philippians had kept Paul well supplied. And what Paul's saying to them now is, hey, you, he's used you to meet my needs. Now he's going to meet your needs. He will provide for your needs according to his riches and glory. My God will su- supply all of your needs. Every need, not, not every want, not e- every need, not every greed, okay? He not, not everything they want, but what they need, he would supply. Another key to maintaining joy along this ride of life is found in the next few verses. It's here that Paul reminds us to behave like saints. We need to behave like the person we say we follow. We call ourselves Christians, we need to behave like it. And we need to act like it. Look at verse 21. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. Those brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, but especially those from Caesar's household. Now, Caesar's household, who's he talking about here? Well, you know, remember Paul's chained to these guards, these imperial guards. He's sharing the gospel with them. They're going back to their barracks. They're sharing with their other soldiers. People are getting saved. Their families are getting saved. And obviously it's spread. Most people believe what Paul's talking about here are those people in and around Caesar's royal palace that serve him executives administrators uh how you know palace cleaners uh servants uh, different people within his court and around i mean just even just everyday servants what's happening is you know we we talked about how paul was concerned about the advance of the gospel his imprisonment was serving to advance the gospel well that's what's happening here people inside caesar's inner circle and beyond are coming to know Christ as a result of Paul's faithfulness in sharing the gospel to these guards. I mean, what's happening is not just that Paul's paving the way for the advance. Yes, he is. What he's doing is actually serving to advance the gospel. People are coming to know Christ. Paul is talking about how God's blessing this. And the point here is this. The the incredible spread of the gospel is enough to make all of us be filled with joy. Think about this. Nero is the man in charge here, okay? And so Nero, he banned any talk, any discussion of Christ within his presence. But what's happening here in the very rooms as a result of Paul's faithfulness, fueled by the Philippians' faithfulness, now in the very rooms where Christ could not be mentioned, he is being discussed openly by those who have chosen to follow him with their lives. Regardless of how much Nero is trying to stop it, he can't. And here's why. The power of the gospel is stronger than the power of Rome or any other power on earth. No one can stop the spread of the gospel. No one can match the power of Christ. And that for Paul, for us, should be, was, and should be for us an incredible source of joy. The fact that God is going to accomplish his purpose no matter who tries to stop it. It's part of the miracle of salvation, right? You think about these people who who would never, you never thought, these guards who you never thought would come to Christ, they're now coming to Christ. It just goes to show you that the gospel is available to everybody. That there's no person who's too far gone to be saved and there's no place that, that's too hard or too, too dangerous for God to reach, too corrupt for God to reach. God can change the world. He can change lives no matter who they are. We all have an opportunity to follow Christ, each and every one of us. But servanthood is sainthood. We're called saints, but sainthood, even though you're a child of God, it doesn't necessarily mean you're living like a saint. And praise God that these people are being saved, but we all need to behave like saints.
We need to behave like followers of Christ. You can, if you're not walking with Christ, you won't be living as a saint. Paul wants them to continue in their faith. We need to behave like saints, and we should also live in God's grace. We live in God's grace. Everything that we are is because of His grace. His gift of salvation, His gift of mercy, His gift of of provisions for daily life. It's grace. Look at verse 23. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. You know, grace is the most precious gift that you can offer. It's the most precious gift that God offers us. By this time, grace was the theme of Paul's life. You know, what the law could not do, grace did. On that road to Damascus, Paul encountered grace and realized that all of the works he had done prior to that moment were all rubbish. It was the grace of God that transformed his life. It was the grace of God that the message of grace that he took to the Gentiles, the people that God called him to reach with the gospel, it was a message of grace. It was grace that transformed his life. It was grace that would transform the lives of others. And any man, woman, child whose life had been radically transformed by grace like Paul's had, that person would shout it from the rooftops from the rest of their life. And that's exactly what Paul did for the rest of his life. He shouted the message of grace. By grace, he had been saved. Not through any works that we would do. We can't boast. It is a gift of God. Eternal life through Christ. Grace was the message of Of Paul's life, it was his message to the Philippians. It's his message to us. Now I want to read to you a letter written to a man on death row by the father of the man that he participated in killing. All right? You're probably surprised that of all people, I'm writing you this letter. But I ask you to read it in its entirety and consider its request seriously. As the father of the man whom you took part in murdering, I have something very important to say to you. I forgive you. With all my heart, I forgive you. I realize it may be hard for you to believe that, but I really do forgive you. At your trial, when you confess to your part in the events that cost my son his life and asked for my forgiveness, I immediately granted you that forgiving love from my heart. I can only hope that you believe me and will accept my forgiveness. But this is not all that I have to say to you. I want to make you an offer, the father says. I want you to become my adopted child. You see, my son who died was my only child, and I now want to share my life with you and leave you my riches. This may not make sense to you or anyone else, but I believe you are worth the offer. I've arranged matters so that if you will receive my offer of forgiveness, not only will you be pardoned for your crime, but you will also be set free from your imprisonment and your sentence of death will be dismissed. At that point, you will become my adopted child and heir to all of my riches. I realize this is a risky offer for me to make to you. You might be tempted to reject my offer completely, but I make it to you without reservation. I also realize it may seem foolish to make such an offer to one who cost my son his life, but I now have a great love and an unchangeable forgiveness in my heart for you. Finally, you may be concerned that once you accept my offer, you may do something to cause you to be denied your rights as an heir to my wealth. Nothing could be further from the truth. If I can forgive you for your part in my son's death, I can forgive you for anything. 
I know you will never be perfect, but you do not have to be perfect to receive my offer. Besides, I believe that once you have accepted my offer and begin to experience the riches that will come to you from me, that your primary, though not always, response will be gratitude and loyalty. Some would call me foolish for my offer, but I wish for you to call me father. Sincerely, the father of Jesus. See, that letter was written to you, and it was written to me. God had every right to deny us life. To let us waste away and die and spend an eternity separated from him in hell. Instead, he chose to offer us forgiveness. Even though we all had a part in his son's death, he offered us forgiveness. He welcomes us into his family. And one day, he will receive us into heaven to be with him for all of eternity. Now, if that's not enough to give you joy, I can't help you. It gives me joy. Joy that only comes from faith in Jesus Christ. So question number one, how have you responded to God's love letter to you? If you're searching for joy, if you're searching for meaning, contentment, purpose in life, you'll never find it outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ. For those of us who know him, are we drawing on his strength, on his mercy, receiving his peace that passes all understanding? Are we living in joy? Joy only comes from faith in Christ and right fellowship with him. God offers it. It's available. So will you receive it and live in it today? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your indescribable, inexplainable peace and joy that you offer to us. We know it's not automatic. First, we have to put our faith and trust in you. But then even as followers, your followers, we have to choose to receive it daily. We have to choose to focus on you, to place you in the center of our lives, to trust in you, not depend on ourselves or any of our circumstances or any possessions. While those things can be good, we know that you bless us with those things. Our our value, our self-worth, our security has to come from our faith in you because only you can supply all of our needs according to your riches. Only you have the power and ability to meet our needs and only you have promised to do that in accordance with your plan and purpose for our lives and in your time. So Lord, may we trust you. And if there's someone here today who doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, I pray that they would take that that step today and make that decision to trust you with their lives, to accept salvation that only comes through you. For those of us who walk with you daily, if there's somebody here today that's struggling with worry, with anxiety, with with receiving joy, I pray that they would renew their commitment to you and trust you anew today, knowing that their salvation is secure, trust you from day to day as they live for you and receive that joy that you offer, that peace that you offer. Lord, there may be other decisions you're leading us to make, decisions of rededication, church membership, whatever it is, baptism. Lord, I pray that we would be obedient to you so that our fellowship with you will be close and healthy and intimate. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to respond to your word, and may we do it as you would have us to do it. In Jesus' name, amen.